reading is from Revelation chapter 1, starting at verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance are ours and Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash round his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this on your favor, in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. Let me have my welcome. My name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here. And we've got a great passage to look at tonight. You've got an outline uh, on the sheet um, so that you can take notes. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear, we pray. You have spoken. Please, would we listen? Amen. At its heart, Christianity is about love. The God who is love, the God who loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us that we might have eternal life. And the God whom we love in response The very climax of history, according to the last two chapters of Revelation, is a wedding, the wedding of the Lord Jesus Christ and his people, the church. And in the meantime, as we await the wedding of the Lamb at the end of history, 
When Jesus was asked, well, what's the most important thing we can do? As human beings, what should we prioritize in life? He said, the first and greatest commandment is this, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and your strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. At its heart, Christianity is all about love. And in tonight's passage, the Holy Spirit challenges you and me as we sit here. Has our love for God grown cold? We'll see why that's a very serious matter. But wonderfully also, the Bible never just challenges us. It always provides the remedy. And we'll learn what to do. What do I do if I feel my heart has just gone cold for God? Okay, let's, uh, let's just do a little bit of background before we get into the, um, the heart, the guts of this letter to Ephesus. Now, after John's vision of the risen Lord Jesus that we looked at last week in Revelation 1, Revelation 2 to 3 contains seven letters for the seven churches in the province of Asia. We've got a map um, in case you like maps. Uh, That's Asia. And if you have incredibly good eyesight, you'll see the, the, the red writing in the middle is the seven churches in the province of Asia. Now, seven in Revelation is an important number. Seven refers to completeness. Seven is a number associated with God. And so these seven are not the only churches in Asia. We know from the book of Acts that Paul planted a heap of other churches in Asia. But these seven seem to represent all of God's churches, and and not really just in Asia, but all God's churches throughout the world. And so at the end of um, each letter, you see, if you look at the end of chapter 2, verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, we're meant to listen to what's written to the other churches. These these seven letters are not just written to each individual church. You have mail. They're written for us as well. Uh, CCM is not the church in Ephesus in AD 90. It's not us. But Jesus gave this message we're going to study tonight to the church at Ephesus. He gave it to them with you and me in mind. These letters are written to all the church geographically and historically, to all of us. And so we should examine ourselves as we study each letter over the coming weeks to see whether there are particular encouragements or particular challenges where the shoe fits for you and for me. You have mail. This is written for us. Now, structurally, all of the letters follow the same pattern. They begin, as you'll see, uh, 2-1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, which is a bit weird. None of the other New Testament letters written by Paul are written to the angel of the church, so why here? Well, in Revelation, God is, as we saw last week, he's peeling back the curtain and looking behind the visible reality to the heavenly realities that lie behind And in addressing the angel of the church, God is reminding us that behind all the earthly activity, there is a heavenly reality. Behind all the earthly activity of church, there is a great heavenly reality. After the address to the the angel, we're told an aspect about Jesus in each letter. And it ties back to the vision of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. And in some sense, each of the the letters picks up on something that will be particularly relevant that we learned about the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. Then there's usually something that's commended, something that church is getting right that pleases the Lord Jesus. 
Then there is a charge against the church where the Lord Jesus says, look, this is not good. It's got to change. And finally, there is a call to pay attention. Let him who has ears, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, Followed by or preceded by a promise. And the promise takes us to the other end of Revelation. The promise usually picks up on the language of the glorious vision of the new heavens and the new earth, the paradise kingdom that God is building. And the promise inspires us with what is to come to those who hang on, those who are faithful, those who keep trusting in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the structure of each letter, as we'll see. But there is also something in the structure of the letters, all of them. And uh, we should have another slide coming up. So if you can see, um, I'm not sure if you can read, there we go. Um, So the first letter is to Ephesus, the seventh is to Laodicea. And both of those are churches that are in danger of ceasing to exist. Jesus says, I'm going to end you as a church if you carry on the way you are. The next uh, two layers in, if you like, of the onion, Smyrna and Philadelphia, two churches that are going really well. And then the three in the middle, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, are a mixed bag. But it is interesting that the first and the last are churches that are in a, a desperately, desperately bad way. It it, it helps remind us there was no golden age of the church when the apostles were there, when everything was just wonderful. It lends an undeniably negative tone to the whole seven letters. They're bracketed by very serious, very messy, soon-to-be-killed, soon-to-cease-to-exist churches. Things are serious. Things are in a mess. And so Jesus is writing. And it reminds us that churches, well, churches have always faced serious threats, externally from persecution and pressure and internally from sinful compromise. That's always going to be the case. So we ought not to be surprised if we face serious challenges ourselves. Okay, three points to take us through this simple letter. Jesus knows his churches, Jesus values your work, and Jesus wants your love. It begins with a description of Jesus drawn from chapter one. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among among the seven golden lampstands. If you look just above that, uh, chapter 120, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, Jesus says, and of the seven golden lampstands is this, the seven stars are are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In other words, Jesus is actively involved with his church. He's not absent. He's not gazing down at the church from far away heaven. He's walking amongst his churches. He's tending them. He's holding them in his right hand. It was slightly unsettling last Sunday, standing up to preach and seeing Dick Lucas in the audience, uh, in the congregation. Um, Now in his 90s, Dick Lucas was the rector at St. Helens and was... Uh, one of the greatest church leaders and preachers of his generation, set up the Proclamation Trust, uh, just a phenomenally, uh, wonderfully godly man, hugely used of God in this city in the last century. No pressure. Um, thankfully, uh, he's in his 90s and the music was so loud. Um, I, think, yeah, I, I don't think he could hear my sermon anyway by that stage. But that's nothing. Dick Lucas in the congregation. The almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, is here with us every single week. Jesus is walking amongst his churches. 
Now, the image of the lampstands, it takes us back to Zechariah 4, the penultimate book of the Old Testament. And in Zechariah 4, the prophet Zechariah is given a vision very similar to this of God's temple with the lampstands being tended and supplied by olive trees. And, and God explains that the point of the image is that uh, God is supplying for the lampstands his people. He is supplying his Holy Spirit, vis- uh, visualized as, as, as olive oil pouring into the lampstands. And in picking up this image, we're reminded that Jesus Christ is walking among the lampstands his churches, and Jesus Christ is supplying the Holy Spirit, empowering the life and the ministry of the church. He is ensuring we are alive. The church is sustained by Jesus. Only he can provide us with the Holy Spirit, and without the Holy Spirit, we are nothing. We wither and die. It doesn't matter how good the music is, and it's wonderful doesn't matter whether you've got inspiring preaching or dull sermons. It makes no difference. It doesn't matter if you've got an amazing community or terrible community. If Jesus isn't supplying the Holy Spirit, it's dead. There's nothing of spiritual value. But wonderfully, he is here. This promises us he is here. And he is pouring out his spirit. Praise God for that. Jesus knows his churches. Secondly, Jesus values our work. What does Jesus see as he tends to the church in Ephesus? Verse two, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people and you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. What does Jesus see? He sees deeds, he sees hard work, and he sees perseverance. Here is a church that's active, not just appearing on a Sunday and nothing, but loads going on during the week. And not just work, but hard work. And not just one-off things, but persevering. Finding things are hard and keeping on, keeping on. Not bailing just because, oh, it's just had a hard day at work or a better offer, but persevering with commitment because this church cares and this church has made commitments. I think of a small group leader here who's never missed a study all year, starts work, I know, shortly after seven, very rarely has time for coffee, very rarely has time to actually eat lunch at work, frequently has to do loads more work when they get back from the midweek Bible study group, but they've never missed a study all year because they made a commitment to the people in their group. And they're not going to miss that. They persevere with serving Jesus' people, even though it's hard work. We also read in verse 3 that the Ephesian church endured hardships for Jesus' sake. We know in Acts 19 that when Paul preached the gospel in Ephesus, lots of people became Christians, but there was massive opposition. There was a huge riot that filled the great stadium in Ephesus. And who knows what happened in the years afterwards. But it wasn't easy to be a Christian there. And yet they've not wavered. They've stood firm, and Jesus is delighted. Hard work and enduring hardships for Jesus. I guess we get that those things would be applauded. They're good things. But the things that Jesus commends in the second half of two perhaps make us a little bit more uneasy. Jesus commends them, do you see? He commends them for their intolerance and for failing to accept people. Oops. 
Now, tolerance is one of the great buzzwords of our age. There's, there's this ongoing debate for the last few years about what British values are, and nobody has any idea except for one thing. The only thing that ever gets trumpeted is British values are tolerance. We're a tolerant people. We value tolerance, and rightly so. But of course, not everything should be tolerated. Usually, the very people who most loudly say we should be tolerant criticize and condemn those who they consider to be intolerant. And Jesus, though, commends this church for its intolerance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. Purity is a good thing. Now note, he is not commending them for being harsh and judgmental. Jesus had absolutely no time for the Pharisees who were harsh and judgmental. He hated hypocrites. So presumably the church is gentle with those who are struggling with sin. But where people have refused to repent or where people are saying, you don't need to, to turn away from sin to be a Christian, well then out of compassion, and out of a desire to honor God, the church would take quiet but firm action to discipline. Not because the church is harsh and judgmental, but because the church is holy and cares about what's right. They also tested those who claimed to be apostles and found them wanting. Verse 2. 2 Corinthians 11.13, Paul says there's a real problem at this point in church history with people who claim to be apostles, that is uh, the authorized eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ who, who really are the foundational teachers of the church. People who are claiming that and are just false and are leading people astray. And the thing is, if we care about other people, if you care about vulnerable people, if you care especially about young Christians, then you'll be seriously unhappy about those who claim authority to teach but actually teach false things. Uh, there's somebody here I know who's a pharmacist, dispenses medicinal drugs. It kind of matters whether they're qualified to do that. You don't really want somebody saying, well, I printed off the degree from the internet. So, what drugs would you like today? You, no, 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 if you're, if you're gonna dispense medicinal drugs, I want to know that you're qualified. And if you're gonna dispense spiritual teaching, in a formal way in particular, I want to know that you're qualified. We're not just gonna endorse any book because people say, well, I quite liked it, or endorse any teacher because, well, there's some things they said that are helpful. We'll examine and we'll test because we care about people. And so here in Ephesus, you've got a church getting a whole heap of stuff right. And that brings great praise from Jesus. They're doing some very difficult things and they're doing them well. And I hope that encourages you. Jesus sees your hard work. Jesus values it. There is nothing that we as a church or you as an individual do that Jesus doesn't see. Every pound that has been sacrificially given, every sin that is resisted in secret, every Bible study or Sunday school lesson that is prepared, every bit of design work that is done, every chair that is moved, every baby that is cradled in creche, every person who is spoken to in street evangelism, every Friday night that's given up for International Cafe, every hour that's sacrificed to come early to rehearse music or work on the sound desk, every late night out with Tamar, 
helping trafficked women, every early morning praying through the church diary, every difficult conversation to lovingly challenge a friend who's in sin, every hour spent patiently listening to someone with chronic depression, every friendly welcome of a new person, every meal cooked for a needy person, and so much more besides. There is nothing that you have done or will do for Jesus that he doesn't see. Frankly, it really doesn't matter too much whether other people notice and appreciate you. The Lord Jesus sees everything. The Lord Jesus values everything. And the Lord Jesus himself will reward everything. Jesus values your work. But, but just as with the rich young ruler, Jesus says to this church, there is though one thing that you lack. Verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. You lack one thing, but it's not a small thing. To be doctrinally sound and full of activity, but lacking in love, that is desperately serious. And so Jesus warns, if that doesn't change, I will remove your lampstand. In other words, he will not continue to pour his Holy Spirit on this church. He will end this church. Sure, the people might keep gathering and doing stuff, but it'll no longer be a church of Christ. You see, a church without love for God cannot faithfully witness to the God who is love. That's why Jesus says, I can't keep having you as a church. You can't represent the God who is love if you lack love. I think it's love for God mainly that's in view here, but of course that is related to love for others. But Jesus himself had warned back in Matthew 24 as he taught the disciples about what life would be like after his return to heaven. He said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And here in Ephesus is a church whose love has grown cold. It's a a church running on habits, not heart. A church full of activities for God, but totally lacking in affection for God. And it is a desperately serious matter. And so it is important that you and I tonight examine ourselves. But we must do so carefully, because it would be so, so easy for this just to turn up into an indiscriminate guilt trip where we baseball bat ourselves with this passage into feeling miserable. Because who here could answer the question, do you love God enough? And say, yep, that's me. It's so easy just to beat ourselves with this. So note first, who is compared? You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Note what he doesn't do. Not compare yourself with that person who is so passionate when they sing. With that person who is always speaking about their love for Jesus. Jesus doesn't call us to compare me with you. We're to con- I'm to compare me 
with me how I used to be. And that's really important because we will be utterly crushed if we compare ourselves with the best, with what we think other people are like. No, 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 no. Jesus says, no, don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself with what you were once like. That's the first thing. Secondly, look at what Jesus' remedy is. And here we come to the thing that, to be honest, has had me scratching my head for most of the week. Look at verse five. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, Jesus has just said, this church is getting A star, A plus for activity, but D minus for love. And yet, what's his remedy? Repent and do the things you did at first. Now, that is odd. I thought the problem was loving, not doing. But he doesn't say, feel the things you felt at first, but do the stuff you did at first. Why? I think it's because love is not just a feeling. It involves the feelings, the affections. But love in the Bible is about more. You could summarize it as a a heart-fueled fundamental devotion to God. And he talks about action. He talks about doing. Because love is a heart-fueled devotion to God that is both seen in what we do, but is also driven by what we do. Imagine a married couple who uh, the love has just grown cold. You know, all sorts has gone on and the love has just grown cold. I mean, I don't know, uh, maybe he performed in a talent show at a church weekend away and, and his wife was on the judging panel and was incredibly harsh. Um, <laughs> sorry, inside joke, but I felt the need to process. Um, those, on the, those on the weekend will understand. Uh, anyway, the, imagine you've got a, a married couple whose love has grown cold. What is the answer? It's not, well, try to feel more loving. Or, well, you should look around at other couples who really love each other and and see if you can draw inspiration from them. Actually, the answer is usually do stuff. Put your phones away and talk over dinner. Have an intentional date night each week if you can. Speak words of love to each other whether you feel like it or not. Buy little things that you know the other person enjoys. Do stuff that stirs love. Do the stuff you used to do when you felt love. Because that's how you rekindle love, actually by doing stuff. And so Jesus asks, those of us who've been Christians a while, a very perceptive question. He asks, look, I know you're doing loads of stuff. And as I look around at this church, you are doing loads of stuff. But Jesus says, are you doing the things you did when you used to love me? Are you doing the things you used to do when you loved me? That's what Jesus asks us. What kind of things are that? Well, they're not defined here, but I don't think it's difficult to work out. I mean, you can tell when someone's fallen in love. They just want to spend all their time together. They can't stop speaking about the person they're in love with. And they delight to do stuff to please them. They want to spend their time together. Do do you remember when you wouldn't let anything stop you from reading your Bible and praying each day? When God got the best of your time, not just the scraps, so you could tick the box and say you'd done it. There's no easy way around this, but I have never, ever, ever met a Christian 
with a warm love for God who didn't have the daily disciplined habit of spending time in the Bible listening to God and then in heartfelt prayer back to God. Set an alarm and fight to rebuild the routine that will allow the relationship and the love to grow once more. Go back to those Bible passages that have stirred your love for God in the past. Go back to those Christian books or those chapters of books or those pages of books or those sermons or those songs that have stirred your love in the past. Come back to them regularly. Refuel your fire. Return to those old paths. Spend time together. Secondly, those in love can't stop speaking about the person they love. Do you remember when you used to share the gospel? I have to say, nothing fuels my, my love for God as much as when I have an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And nothing dulls my love so much as when I go for a long period of time without telling anybody about Jesus. It just seems to be the case. I can't find a verse that tells me that. But everybody I talk to, that seems to be pretty familiar. Look for opportunities to speak of Christ. And when you love someone, you do stuff that pleases them. So when a ministry trainee here who hasn't got a cultural bone in their body, just loves watching sport, when they suddenly start taking a keen interest in classical music, it's not usually hard to work out why. They've fallen in love with someone who's culturally out of their league. And now they want to please them. Do you remember when you used to like doing stuff for God? Even slightly crazy stuff, just because you wanted to please him. I think of a, a previous ministry trainee I knew um, at a church who basically, as a young Christian, had jumped on a plane to China with no real plan, without proper funding, without language skills or contact there, really. They just, they, they just heard a call and they wanted to go. It was utterly reckless. But there was something rather admirable about that kind of devotion. That, look, I'm not interested in calculating the costs. I just want to give everything to serve Jesus. Now, it's good to be wise as well, but it's, there is something wonderfully admirable about that just desire to give everything. It's interesting that the last comment in this section, four to six, is about hate. Did you notice that? Verse six. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. We'll come to the Nicolaitans in a couple of weeks. But hate is a very important thing in the context where Jesus has been saying you lack love. Because hate goes along with love. Hate's not the opposite of love. Indifference is the opposite of love. If you love someone, you'll hate the things that cause them damage or pain. And so this church's hate for wicked teaching, which damages the church, it shows that there are rightfully strong feelings in the church. And a church that hates false teaching should be a church that can be stirred up to love for God. Wonderfully, though, this letter ends with hope. And we're told to look back and look forward. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The lampstand in the temple was carved like a tree, a picture of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And the promise here is that those who love Jesus faithfully will one day join Jesus and eat from the tree of life in the garden 
the true garden, God's paradise city garden and the new creation. And he gives this promise to stir their love once more. Love Jesus for what he's promised he'll give you. Has your love grown a bit cold? Sometimes the honest truth is life is just stretching or miserable or you've got depression or some terrible health issue and you're doing what you can under the pressure you face and that's okay, Jesus knows and Jesus sees and Jesus values. But for many of us, here is a reminder that as we grow in maturity, we can just grow dull and formal and cold in our faith. And so the Holy Spirit calls us, look forward to the promise of eternal life and paradise, meditate on it, stir your heart with it, and look back. Look back to times when you were warmer in your love for God and return to doing those things. Be different for each of us, I guess. But do those things that you once did when you loved God. Knock and that door will be opened. Seek, and you will find. For the God who calls us to love him is always ready to receive us and to love us first. Let's pray. We love because he first loved us. Our Father God, we thank you so much that you are a God who has loved us perfectly, infinitely. And you're a God whose love for us has never grown cold. How extraordinary. For your love for us was poured out at the cross. And Father, we pray that where our love has grown cold and a bit dull and familiar, that you would help us to, to walk back in the old paths that helped us stir our love for you. We ask that by your spirit, you would rekindle our love for you. You would show us again how magnificent the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is. You would fill us with the hope and the joy of the promise of heaven. That once again, the very heart of our Christian life might be that we love you. Amen.